Hello, kindred spirits. Welcome back to Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Kelly Gurner, and I'm joined by my co-host, Reagan Duffy. Hello, kindred spirits. Hey, Reagan. So what's going on with you? Kelly, do you know what is happening tomorrow? I think I do. Tomorrow, my daughter, Alice, is graduating from fifth grade. I mean, just a minute ago, this girl was this teeny little five-year-old with long French braids. And on the first day of school, fifth graders all looked enormous. They looked like practically grown up. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. It flew by really fast. And boy, I know middle school isn't adulthood, but the way this kid has grown and matured and become even more herself over the last six years, it's just crazy. It's kind of hard to think about all of them moving into the bigger world of middle school. I think Alice is feeling that herself where she's mm. sad to be leaving her elementary school. She's really loved it and it's been a wonderful school and, you know, excited for graduation, but not sure about this big change coming up. But I know she is going to just fly next year. Of course she is. She's going to fly and middle school is going to fly by too, I'm sure. Yeah, there's a saying that goes around like, in the parenting world, it says the days are long, but the years are short. Oh, yeah. 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 This is one of those moments where it definitely feels like that on a day-to-day -day basis, right? The work is still the work. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's different work than when she was little, but all of a sudden thinking about how quickly it's all gone, it's just crazy to me. Yeah. Well, Reagan, congratulations to you. You have done an amazing job, a wonderful job, raising an inquisitive, creative, kind, good-natured, confident, and brave kiddo. I'm so proud of you, and I'm so proud of her, and I hope you are as proud of yourself as you are of her, too. Oh, thank you. I don't know. Sometimes it's hard. It feels like she, she did the hardest part, and I just tried to stay out of her way, maybe, but maybe I'm giving myself too little credit. I he couldn't I have done her. it without the foundation you laid for her. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I'm excited for you guys. Have an amazing, amazing day tomorrow. Congratulations to Alice. I will be sure to send you pictures. She is extremely excited to be wearing her first shoes with a little tiny heel. <laughs> oh, that Now that's the real rite of passage. Anne would be very proud. Beautiful shoes and a beautiful dress, I'm sure. A hundred percent. It doesn't have puffed sleeves, but it does have a ruffled like high-low hem. So oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure Anne would appreciate such a thing. Absolutely. Well, last episode, we recapped Anne of the Island, one of our very favorite Anne books. And in the next couple of episodes, we are going to break it down by theme, much like we did for Anne of Avonlea. In fact, those same three themes are our guiding principles here. If you remember, way back in Anne of Green Gables, on that very first ride to Green Gables from Bright River Station, young Anne asked Matthew if he'd rather be divinely beautiful, dazzlingly clever, or angelically good. Matthew demurs, and Anne says that she can't decide and it's not likely that she'll be any of those qualities. But we notice that throughout the book, Anne continues to make strides towards those values. In Anne of the Island, we see Anne becoming dazzlingly clever in her career aspirations and education. We see her divine beauty realized in how she's perceived by her suitors and in Anne's own appreciation and experience of romance. And the one quality she was sure she could never possess, angelic goodness, we see reflected in her good work in her community and in the love of her friends and found family. So today, we're going to talk about the virtue of being angelically good. In Anne of Avonlea, we talked about how Anne grows into this virtue through building her connection to her community and being in service to her community through raising Davy and Dora, through founding the AVIS. In Anne of the Island, Anne's community is in her experience in building deep friendships, especially making a home together with three other girls throughout her college life. Anne is moving outside of the protected little sphere of Avonlea, where everyone is known and Anne has a distinct place amongst them. Now she's moving into a bigger world where she will be making a place for herself, choosing friendships deliberately, creating a haven for herself and her friends, 
and actively building a life of her own choosing. Our kindred spirit this episode is Aunt Jamesina, or as the girls call her, Aunt Jimsy. She's Stella's aunt, and she moves in with Stella, Anne, Philippa, and Priscilla to keep house for them and somewhat shop around them. Aunt Jimsy grounds the girls. She gently guides them, and she gives them the space to grow throughout the three years they live together at Patty's place. She's a model of feminine community for Anne. We've often talked about all the role models Anne has for adult womanhood, and here we have Aunt Jimsy providing yet another one. Our quote of the episode introduces Aunt Jimsy. Aunt Jamesina was a tiny old woman with a little softly triangular face and large soft blue eyes that were alight with unquenchable youth and as full of hopes as a girl's. She had pink cheeks and snow white hair, which she wore in quaint little puffs over her ears. It's a very old fashioned way, she said, knitting industriously at something as dainty and pink as a sunset cloud. But I am old fashioned. My clothes are, and it stands to reason my opinions are, too. I don't say they're any better of that, mind you. In fact, I dare say they're a good deal the worse. But they've worn nice and easy. New shoes are smarter than old ones, but the old ones are more comfortable. I'm old enough to indulge myself in the matter of shoes and opinions. I mean to take it real easy here. I know you expect me to look after you and keep you proper, but I'm not going to do it. You're old enough to know how to behave if you're ever going to be. So as far as I'm concerned, concluded Aunt Jamesina, with a twinkle in her young eyes, you can all go to destruction in your own way. She is so mischievous and fun. And of course, the young women of Patty's place don't get into too much destruction. But I love that Aunt Jimsy makes it clear that she trusts them to make their own choices. And she's less interested in raising them and more interested in letting them figure things out for themselves. In our story club today, we're going to explore how Anne moves out of the protected space of Avonlea to start making her way in the wider world. Anne is leaving for Redmond College, which is not just outside of Avonlea, but it's not even on Prince Edward Island. Anne is off to Nova Scotia, off to college, and about to embark on the very meaningful act of creating a communal home in Patty's place. But... First, we have to start in Avonlea and the closing of her chapter there, particularly her experience with the AVIS. The AVIS, the Avonlea Village Improvement Society, founded by Gilbert and Anne, marked Anne's experience in contributing to her little community and building something that would continue in her absence. The AVIS gives Anne and Gilbert a farewell party as they head to Redmond, and we check in with the Avonlea young folk as Anne and Gilbert's paths start to diverge from their hometown. The pies are even being kind of nice to Anne at the party, and the tokens of respect that she receives from the group touch her deeply. Anne thinks she had worked hard and faithfully for the AVIS, and it warmed the cockles of her heart that the members appreciated her efforts so sincerely. And they were all so nice and friendly and jolly. Even the pie girls had their merits. At that moment, Anne loved all the world. Anne feels safe and happy here in Avonlea, a place that embraced her when she arrived, gave her space and encouragement to grow. She's a bit of a shining star in Avonlea. Even the folks that shake their heads about the dubious undertaking of leaving Avonlea want the best for Anne. Right. And in the first two books, we got to watch Anne go from Avonlea newcomer to Avonlea insider to now a genuinely solid pillar in the Avonlea community. So, of course, this is a bittersweet moment for the town and for Anne. Anne herself is a bit overwhelmed at the idea of leaving. She knows it will be a great thing for her to go to college, but she also knows it will change everything forever. She thought... She was leaving the home that was so dear to her, and something told her that she was leaving it forever, save as a holiday refuge. Things would never be the same again. Coming back for vacations would not be living there. Anne is also leaving Diana, her truest friend, and she knows that this is another big change, like Diana's engagement, that sends the two farther from each other. She's afraid she'll be homesick, and so is glad that her friend from Queen's Academy, Priscilla Grant, will also be going to Redmond and will be boarding with her at the same boarding house. When Anne finally arrives in Kingsport, she is thoroughly miserable and feeling desperately out of place. When Anne spots Priscilla at the station, she says, It's such a blessing that you're here, Prissy. If you weren't, I think I should just sit down on my suitcase here and now and weep bitter tears. What a comfort one familiar faces in a howling wilderness of strangers. And that's so true, isn't it? I mean, just being known by someone immediately makes a new place feel familiar. That is so true. 
Well, yeah, I mean, you and I both made the decision to go to college in cities where we had close relatives. You went to New York where your aunt lives and my grandmother, aunt and uncle all live in San Francisco where I went to college. So things like that make these big new moments in a new location feel a lot easier if you know where you can find a friendly face. Absolutely. On their first day at Redmond, Anne and Priscilla head to registration and feel very out of place and lonely. Oh, sighed Anne. I can't describe how I felt when I was standing there waiting for my turn to be registered, as insignificant as the teeniest drop in the most enormous bucket. For the last few years, Anne has been a rather big fish in quite a small pond. She did work hard for that place in Avonlea, and she got there by her sparkling personality, devotion to her academics, and her joyful participation in the Avonlea community. But she's starting all the way over at Redmond, and any brand new freshman has felt pretty much this exact same way. Anne elaborates on this idea a little bit, saying, I suppose the trouble is we can't forgive big Redmond for not being little queens. When we left Queens, we knew everybody and had a place of our own. I suppose we have been unconsciously expecting to take life up at Redmond just where we left off at Queens. Anne conveniently forgets how deeply homesick and out of place she felt when she first arrived at Queens. She's measuring Redmond's beginning against Queen's ending. Right. I mean, you remember how happy Anne was to see even Josie Pye at Queen's in that first week. You have to be pretty lonely to be glad to see Josie Pye. Oh, yeah. No. So she she's felt this homesick before. Anne and Priscilla don't stay on the outskirts for long. They quickly meet Philippa Gordon. They had noticed her at registration, the prettiest girl there. And she had seemed to start to come towards them multiple times, but kept changing her mind. That afternoon, they run into her at the old St. John's graveyard, where again, she starts to approach them several times, but keeps retreating. It turns out that Phil isn't shy, just deeply indecisive. Phil gushes, I knew we were going to adore each other. I knew it as soon as I saw you at Redmond this morning. I wanted so much to go right over and hug you both. After an enjoyable afternoon chatting and roaming the graveyard with Philippa, Anne tells Priscilla, I'm glad we've met her, and I'm glad we went to Old St. John's. I believe I've put forth a tiny soul root in Kingsport soil this afternoon. I hope so. I hate to feel transplanted. That reminds me of Anne's line at the end of Anne of Avonlea, where she's reflecting on her past two years, and she says that she's put down a lot of roots in Avonlea. I really appreciate how Anne uses that plant metaphor to explain how she relates to a particular place. And it shows that she knows that the first step to feeling more at home someplace is to start to send out new roots. Well, becoming friends with Phil ends up being a piece of good fortune for Anne and Priscilla. Phil's the kind of person that effortlessly draws friends around her and pulls Anne and Priscilla right along with her. Of Phil, we learn, quote, Phil adored Anne and Priscilla, especially Anne. She was a loyal little soul, crystal free from any form of snobbishness. Love me, love my friends, seemed to be her unconscious motto. And after three weeks of life at Redmond, life suddenly snaps into place for Anne. She finds a routine. The campus becomes familiar to her. The freshman class coalesces into a group as a whole, and having a group identity is very grounding. The class becomes a community, and Anne has an important place in it. When Anne gets letters from Avonlea, she still feels that pull of connection, but she's forming her own life here in Kingsport. She steadfastly identifies as an Avonlea girl, defending Charlie Sloan, of all people, to Philippa out of loyalty to her village. And very early in her life at Kingsport, Anne comes across Patty's place, a small house surrounded by pines and covered in red and gold vines with an old-fashioned garden in front and an apple orchard in the back. It's on the fanciest avenue in Kingsport, surrounded by enormous new mansions. Anne is enchanted by it and already feels connected to it, getting a foreshadowing that she will soon become better acquainted with Patty's place. The first semester flies by, and Anne is excited to return to Avonlea for Christmas holidays. Phil is a bit dismissive of the country life that Anne is devoted to, but Anne says, There will be love there, Phil. Faithful, tender love, such as I'll never find anywhere else in the world. Love that's waiting for me. Green Gables and Avonlea are still Anne's safe place, still the kind of home that makes her brave enough to venture out to Redmond. And Anne needs to return home as a touchstone to remind herself that her home is still there for her. A girl without a true home for so long, Green Gables is still a magical place for Anne. 
we'll see that as the book goes on that Anne starts to find herself feeling less and less of that need to return home and begins to find a home outside of Avonlea, even though Avonlea and Green Gables are still there for her. The second semester speeds by just as quickly as the first. The text says, Anne enjoyed it thoroughly in all its phases, the stimulating class rivalry, the making and deepening of new and helpful friendships, the gay little social stunts, the doings of the various societies of which she was a member, the widening of horizons and interests. At the end of the semester, Anne's friend from Queens, Stella Maynard, writes that she'll be coming to Redmond in the fall too, and she has an idea that she, Priscilla, and Anne all rent a little house together instead of boarding, and she will bring her Aunt Jamesina to come keep house for them. Anne and Priscilla love this plan because no matter how nice a boarding house is, it just doesn't feel like a home. The two girls search high and low for a house that would meet their needs and budget. Just as they are about to give up on the idea and try their luck in the fall, they walk past Patty's place to see a sign advertising it for rent. They can hardly believe their good fortune. At first, old Miss Patty Spofford says, actually, they've decided not to rent the house at all, while she and her equally ancient niece, Miss Maria, go traveling. They can't find the right people to rent it. But Anne confesses how much she loves the little house, exactly as it is, name and all. Miss Patty is charmed by Anne's sincerity and even lowers the price to fit their budget. The house will come furnished, including distinctive large china dogs that flank the fireplace named Gog and Magog. The plan is set for the fall and Anne is beyond delighted. Okay, so Regan, when I first read this book, I was totally enchanted. I'm not sure if enchanted is the word. Maybe just sort of like amazed by the presence of Gog and Magog to the point that I somehow got it in my head that all decorative dogs were named Gog and Magog. (laughs) (laughs) So to this day, if I'm at a museum and I see porcelain dogs on display somewhere, I'm all like, okay, Gog, Magog, there they are. I'm filing this away to remember for your birthday next year. (laughs) I really love this moment in the book. I feel like this is where that sense of community in Anna the Island really just takes off. All those disparate parts are coming together, right? Anne has her old friends from Queens, Priscilla and Stella. She has her new friend, Phil. She has her place at school and within her class. And now she is about to live in the most charming house on the poshest street in town. It's a perfect recipe for creating the collegiate found family of your dreams. Seriously, none of the places I lived in college were ever as cute as Patty's place. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Not even close. No. (laughs) I mean, we made them wonderful, but Patty's place is truly special. Well, Phil thinks so, too. And when she hears of this plan, she begs to join them at Patty's place. Anna and Priscilla tell her that it will be much plainer living than wealthy Phil is used to. Not only that. But Phil will have to do some chores as well and abide by the rule of only having callers on Friday evenings so they can stay focused on their studies. Phil promises she'll be happy to do all of those things if only she can live with them. She even suggests she'll just sleep in the doghouse out back. Anne and Priscilla agree, and after Phil leaves, they have this convo. Says Anne, I think Phil will fit into our happy little home very well. And Pris responds, oh, Phil's a dear to rattle around with and be chums. And of course, the more there are of us, the easier it will be on our slim purses. But how will she be to live with? You have to summer and winter with anyone before you know if she's livable or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How many of us have ended up with some difficult roommate or housemate scenarios because one of our friends who is a great friend is not great to live with? Happens to all of us, I think. I definitely experienced that firsthand. And to be <laughs> to be honest, Reagan, I actually think that I am probably the Philippa in this situation. <laughs> I don't want to jeopardize our future commune with each other. But in college, I was definitely the roommate who would burst into your room while you were studying with some half-baked idea and convince you to abandon your work to go off on a wild goose chase. And I always took up more than my fair share of bathroom counter space with all my bath products. And I practiced music at home. Nothing like your housemate singing scales while you're nursing a hangover to endear them to you, right? Well, don't worry, because in our commune, we're all going to have our own little cottages. Good, good. Yeah. (laughs) But also, like Phil, you're deeply charming and emotionally Mm. generous and a great confidant and a great cheerleader. 
Plus, well, thank you. you make amazing charcuterie boards. I do. So, have yeah. So it all balances out. <laughs> I'm definitely the responsible one. I think in a roommate situation, I'm always the designated driver. I'm usually the first to sleep. <laughs> I can be counted on to commiserate with you over diner, fries, and cheesecake. I always remember to lock the doors and to buy more Diet Coke. But I was not always great at doing the dishes, and I'm a terrible wing woman. I'd always rather be at home with a good book than at a bar. Oh, well, I'll admit to leaving dishes in the sink all the time on the off chance that someone might forget and think that they were hers instead of mine. (laughs) (laughs) The dish fairy rides again. Yep. (laughs) Anne returns to Avonlea for the summer, having settled the question of next year's living situation. And she starts having a bit of that itchy, uncomfortable feeling you have when you start to outgrow your home. She's changed and grown over this year, and Avonlea has as well. It's not exactly as she left it, and even the parts that are don't fit as neatly as they once did. She and Diana aren't on the same page as they used to be, as evidenced by the Avril's atonement fiasco. When Anne returns to Redmond in the fall, it's with a surge of joy and belonging. Just one more week and we go back to Redmond, said Anne. She was happy at the thought of returning to work and classes and Redmond friends. Pleasing visions were also being woven around Patty's place. There was a warm, pleasant sense of home in the thought of it even though she had never lived there. I mean, Anne's also happy to go back to Redmond because she can escape the humiliation of the Rowling's reliable win for her poor, tragic little story. Arriving back at Redmond, all the girls agree that Patty's place is perfect. Phil raving, it's the homiest spot I ever saw. It's homier than home. The girls quickly start making Patty's place their own as they get ready for the arrival of Aunt Jimsy. Quote, how those girls enjoyed putting their nest in order. As Phil said, it was almost as good as getting married. You had the fun of homemaking without the bother of a husband. Oh my God, that's the best quote. It's the best line and it really captures what a cool thing they all get to do together. The lovely thing about this experience is that Anne is getting kind of a trial run at true adulthood. The girls are living without their parents, and while Aunt Jimsy is nominally the adult in charge, she actively plans to not parent them. She's going to keep the home fires burning and help organize with the practicalities of keeping house, but she's not going to be in charge. So the friends get to enjoy the fun of independence and making a place their own without the bigger responsibilities of marriage and children. It's really the best of all worlds. Yeah, I don't know about you, Kelly, but I definitely felt that way about my college apartments with friends. Once we moved out of school housing into shared apartments, it was so exciting to have a place to ourselves. And we both felt old enough for that responsibility and not old enough at the same time. Right. Like someone is trusting us to pay rent on time. More fool them. <laughs> oh, my gosh. In my junior year, we lived, I went to college in New York City and we lived in, of course, this like terrible, tiny walk-up apartment. Our place got broken into, like the door was crowbarred open. Oh, geez. Yeah, to like cut the bolt. And I came home and we didn't know what to do. We just sit around looking at each other being like, now what? Isn't there like somebody we could call like our dads? (laughs) (laughs) What do you do? Right, the manual for what to do after being broken into was not readily apparent. Yep. Nope. Yeah, we were fine. We survived. Well, I'm I'm sorry to say that I actually only got to do that for a year, and I wish I had known then how important it would be to have a few more years of communal living as a young adult. But I do remember decorating our house with my friends and finding furniture in all kinds of weird places, (laughs) and hanging up the tapestries we bought on Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley. It takes no time at all for Patty's place to feel like home, decorated with knickknacks from homes and pictures the girls had brought, with Mrs. Lynn's quilt on every bed. In fact, a little bit of Avonlea country life was appreciated on snobby Spofford Avenue. The Tobacco King millionaire next door spotted Mrs. Lynn's quilts airing out in the orchard and asked to buy one because it reminded him of his mother. And of course, would not sell it, but she wrote about it to Mrs. Lynn, who sent the Tobacco King another quilt of his own. Anne also ends up adopting a stray street cat she dubs Rusty. Or rather, Rusty adopts Anne. That universal cat distribution system was in full effect. (laughs) He follows her home and lives on the doorstep of Patty's place, waiting for opportunities to dart inside and cuddle up to Anne. Phil offers to humanely chloroform him, as Aunt Jimsy will be arriving soon and bringing her own cat with her. 
Stella fears that Rusty will fight with Aunt Jimsy's cat because he clearly is fighting with all the cats in the neighborhood. Anne feels deeply guilty about the chloroforming. And when it doesn't take, due to a knothole in the box, Anne declares that she won't do it. Rusty is hers now. And so Rusty becomes part of the little makeshift family forming at Patty's place. And he figures out a peaceful relationship with Aunt Jimsy's two cats, eventually anyway. In Philippa Gordon, we see reflected Anne's growing goodness. Phil tells Anne, You're different from any girl I ever knew before. When you look at me in a certain way, I feel what an insignificant, frivolous little beast I am, and I long to be better and wiser and stronger. As we saw in Anne of Avonlea, Anne's ideals are sometimes unrealistic, but she tries to live them so earnestly and sincerely that other people are inspired and encouraged to be just a little bit better as well. Living at Patty's Place is not just about growth for Anne, but growth for Phil. Phil starts out the book as an unabashed, frivolous society girl. She's deeply indecisive, loves to flirt, and views her social life as paramount. She primarily came to college to avoid having to get married and plans on having just a good time for the next few years. Her friendship with Anne, and by extension Priscilla and Stella and Aunt Jimsy, gradually starts to change her. Anne lives by her ideals and is so authentic and sincere, Phil can't help but pick up on it. By the time November arrives, Phil is already invested in their little home. She says, It's beginning to snow, girls, and there are the loveliest little stars and crosses all over the garden walk. I never noticed before what exquisite things snowflakes really are. One has time to notice things like that in the simple life. Bless you all for permitting me to live it. It's really delightful to feel worried because butter has gone up five cents a pound. Phil has never had to be practical or think about practical matters. And her experience at Patty's Place helps bring her down out of her rarefied bubble of a world, which helps prime her for falling in love with her humble minister Jonas down the line. I love that we get to see Phil as sort of a foil for Anne. The other girls that Anna's friends with are also from PEI, right? So from more like modest backgrounds. And it's kind of fun to have someone as flashy and cosmopolitan and dazzling as Phil is. And then seeing the effect that Anne's sincerity and goodness has on her is a really important part. Part of her story arc. When Anne returns to Green Gables for Christmas after her first semester at Patty's place, she finds that she's not as content in Avonlea as she had been. Besides it being such a cold and stormy winter that it's hard to get out to visit friends, and Gilbert's increasingly romantic interest in Anne, she misses the community she's created. The text tells us Anne, despite her love of and loyalty to Green Gables, could not help thinking longingly of Patty's place. It's cozy open fire, Aunt Jamesina's mirthful eyes, the three cats, the merry chatter of the girls, the pleasantness of Friday evenings when college friends dropped in to talk of grave and gay. Anne is finding that in the act of creating a home-like space for herself at Patty's place, she's gradually moving away from Green Gables. And that's a good thing, but it also feels a little bit uncomfortable when it happens. And we see over her next few visits to Avonlea that it's happening more and more. Her next visit during the summer is after Anne turns down Gilbert's proposal and their friendship severs. She finds that something is missing most of the summer. She refuses to admit to anyone, especially herself, that it is Gilbert she is missing. Anne is included in all the social doings in Avonlea, but often feels a bit on the outskirts of things. More and more, her social life is centered at Redmond, and more and more, she's finding she doesn't need Avonlea to belong somewhere. Anne's friendships and her community buoy her up as she navigates her romantic life, and they can speak plainly to her when Anne needs to hear it. And Anne can return the favor, often calling Phil in particular out when she indulges herself in despair about Jonas or lets her vanity run away from her. Bill. You're not really frivolous, said Anne gravely. Way down underneath that frivolous exterior of yours, you've got a dear, loyal, womanly little soul. Why do you hide it so? As Anne's last summer of college rolls around, the pull-away from Avonlea's home is nearly complete. Diana gets married at the beginning of the summer, and while Anne is deeply glad for her oldest friend, she recognizes that this is a sea change in their friendship. Although Anne has been growing and moving away from Green Gables for three years, there's a part of her that is struggling with the idea that Diana and other folks in Avonlea are also growing and changing. Anne is so sad that Diana will be leaving Orchard Slope and she will never again signal to Diana's window from her own. But then Anne hasn't been home that much to do so for the last three years. So why is it so sad now? I think it's always sad realizing that a door is closing. 
even if it's a door you walk through on your own, even if you don't want to go back. Mm -hmm. Diana tells Anne, we are not really parting, Anne. I'm not going far away. We'll love each other just as much as ever. We've always kept that oath of friendship we swore long ago, haven't we? And Anne agrees that it is true and that they've never argued, but says, but things can't be quite the same after this. You'll have other interests. I'll just be on the outside. But such is life, as Mrs. Rachel says. Anne and Diana's friendship has always been one based in deep acceptance of each other and their shared experiences growing up. But in the last three years, they are moving away from each other, not because they don't love each other, but because they are having such vastly different experiences. When I was writing this, Kelly, I was flashing back to our discussion early last season in Diana's episode when you talked about your childhood friendships and how you all shaped each other and as such have been able to stay connected even as your lives and paths diverged. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's what's happening here for Anne and Diana. They mm -hmm. will always be deeply connected to each other and they shaped much of the foundation of each other's lives. But Anne is now connecting to her college friends in a different way. They share ambitions and new experiences. They can see Anne in a new way and they are more alike in personality than perhaps she and Diana have been. That doesn't diminish her friendship with Diana, but when we contrast it with Anne's current friendship with Phil, we see that Phil can see Anne's romantic entanglements far more clearly and can call Anne out in ways that perhaps Diana would never do. Yes, and, absolutely. And Anne can view Phil's romances with a more objective light than she can with Diana's. Mm -hmm. Anne keeps holding Diana to the ideals they had in childhood, to whom Anne thought Diana to be in childhood. She doesn't have that experience with Phil, so she can accept Phil as the adult she is now and push her where she needs to grow up. Reagan, I love that perspective. I think that's really wise. And I think that Philippa's role in this book is so important for that very reason. Diana will always see Anne as kind of like half her present self and half that vulnerable, nervous child who visited Orchard Slope with Marilla on the day they first met. You know, and speaking of my childhood friends, my friend Sarah actually came over the other night and we were talking and she told me that when she thinks of me, like thinks of me in the abstract, she thinks of me as like partially my present self, but also partially my 13 year old self. Yeah. There's this really specific picture of us at Disneyland that I know she has in a frame at her house. And she's like, you are like half you and half the Disneyland, Kelly. And it's amazing to have friends who can see you that way, right? Like friends you've known for so long, but your friends who've only known that adult you have a totally different understanding of who you are now and what you're capable of. So if I'm thinking about Phil and Anne, in this book, Anne needs the kind of guidance from someone who has only known her as an adult and who doesn't still see her as partially this vulnerable child. You know, and also Phil doesn't know Anne's complicated history with Gilbert Blythe. She doesn't know what it felt like to grow up in the shadow of this really humiliating moment, right, when she smashed the slate. And Phil only sees the connection between Anne and Gilbert as two capable, brilliant adults who are meant for each other. Mm-hmm. Living together at Patty's Place has forged a new community, a new experience for Anne that matches where she is right at this moment in her life. Anne's solid foundation of friendship with Diana gives Anne a blueprint for how to be a good friend. Nothing could match Anne and Diana for sheer loyalty and devotion. But at Patty's Place, Anne gets to live with girls who are kindred spirits in a new way, an adult way, that gently helps Anne grow and mature. After Diana's wedding, Anne chooses to go to another PEI town called Valley Road to teach for the remainder of the summer. She says, do you know, I'm beginning to feel a little bit like a stranger in Avonlea now. It makes me sorry, but it's true. Anne's education and her experience meeting so many like-minded, ambitious people pulls her from Avonlea. It's a good thing for Anne overall, but growth often means leaving a little something behind as well. Anne's last year of Redmond opens with all the Patty's Place residents glad to be back together. All four of the girls plunge back into their studies with ferocity as they all wish to win graduation honors. One evening, Stella finds Anne looking over her old story club manuscripts. This scene is the longest we really get to interact with Stella, who at this moment is feeling somewhat discouraged and tired out from the grind of studying. Anne tries inspiring Stella with some grand thoughts like, just think of all the great and noble souls who have lived and worked in the world. Isn't it worthwhile to come after them and inherit what they won and taught? 
And think of all the great people in the world today. Isn't it worthwhile to think we can share their inspiration? And then all the great souls that will come in the future. Isn't it worthwhile to work a little and prepare the way for them? Make just one step in their path easier? Such an idealistic little speech. It sounds like something I would have said from my own college life, honestly. I mean, that is an Anne Shirley kind of pep talk if there ever was one. I'm not sure if it would work on me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and in this moment, it doesn't particularly work on Stella. She's not really feeling encouraged. Mm -hmm. So Anne reads her some of the Story Club offerings. And Stella gets a line right here that is often wrongly attributed to Anne herself. Stella says, go on. I begin to feel that life is worth living as long as there's a laugh in it. Poor Stella's contribution to the Instagram-style inspirational quotes will be celebrated here by us. Justice for Stella. Oh my gosh, Reagan, I never realized that, but you're absolutely right. I see those quotes all the time, and they're always like, Anne Shirley. And it's like, no, that's literally Stella laughing at Anne. Right. (laughs) Or at younger Anne who wrote the Story Club stories. But yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. I don't think I really realized it either until doing this very close reading of this book. Oh, that's so funny. Yes, justice for Stella. She deserves to be properly attributed in all the Instagram inspirational quotes. I feel like clearly we need to make our own. Yes, exactly. Oh, we totally do. Okay, someone sh- someone show us how to use Photoshop, please. We're old. <laughs> <laughs> Someday we'll get there. Yep. Well, this little scene is an effortless peek into the natural friendship between the two. Anne understands the kind of study fatigue that Stella's experiencing. And Stella can laugh with Anne over her childhood writings because she appreciates the contrast with Anne's current academic achievements. When Anne submits her little garden story to a magazine and it gets published, her roommates can celebrate wholeheartedly with her. And when the gardener matriarch and sisters arrive unexpectedly for a visit, they are nervous for her and rally around her to make it a success. Although for some reason, Priscilla kind of freaks out and sticks the cake she's holding under a cushion so she can run upstairs without crossing in front of the gardeners. Not sure what happened there. (laughs) I love that scene, though. It reminds me a little of the way that in Anne of Avonlea, Diana rallied around Anne when Mrs. Morgan came to visit unexpectedly, while Anne, of course, was in the middle of changing the feather bed. So good friends are always good friends, especially in a crisis. The Redmond years and the Patty's Place years start winding to a close with exams and papers, and the girls are studying madly. They all do very well with honors all around for everyone. Anne is waiting for Roy to propose, but the girls know Anne very well by now, know things that Anne can't even admit to herself. Stella remarks that there's not much to Roy, not in a jealous way, just knowing that Anne needs something from a relationship she's not going to get from Roy. Phil scolds her when Anne turns Roy down, again calling her out on the mismatch between her words and her actions. Anne and Diana would never have had that kind of throwdown, but Anne and Philippa can, with all forgiven, because Anne can recognize somewhere deep down the truth and the kindness in what Phil tells her. As the girls pack up to leave Patty's place, They recognize that this is the end of a very special era in their lives. Phil says, What nice times we've had here, honey. What chats and jokes and good chummy jamborees. Oh, dear me. I'm to marry Joe in June, and I know I will be rapturously happy. But just now, I feel as if I wanted this lovely Redmond life to go on forever. Anne completely understands and responds with, I'm unreasonable enough just now to wish that too. No matter what deeper joys may come to us later on, we'll never again have just the same delightful, irresponsible existence we've had here. It's over forever, Phil. Mm, Yeah, I feel that. I remember that time. Yeah, that's the singular experience of college life or that limbo life between childhood and adulthood, I think. Yeah, It's this chance to learn and grow and discover yourself, who you are, and what you can bring to the world in a protected space. Enough freedom to explore and direct your own path, but in a bubble. Nothing but learning and growing is expected from you. You don't have to take care of anyone else yet, but you're old enough to take care of yourself. Women were often not afforded this opportunity, and of course, it's still an opportunity many people cannot take advantage of for financial or family reasons, not to mention racism, sexism, all sorts of reasons that it might make it hard for folks to access college. But those who do get the experience 
get it as a gift of time to grow a little more into themselves in a space where the stakes are lower and the support and community is more available. Anne is very lucky to have had this chance, and it's clear she took advantage of it to the fullest. (laughs) She leaves Patty's place with lifelong friendships, with the experience of growing into her ideals and seeing others do the same. She has another model of womanhood and Aunt Jimsy to take with her, and she goes forth to build the next chapter of her life. Anne's journey towards angelic goodness, a goal that can't ever be truly completed, has added another milestone. Anne is entering the next stage of her life, knowing that she can make a community anywhere and that kindred spirits abound in the world. Please join me on a ramble down the birch path to discuss some other examples of women living together in community around this time period. Reagan. Did you happen to read the book The Barbizon Hotel by Paulina Bren? I have not. Well, I read it with one of my book clubs, and I heartily recommend it. It's about the history of the Barbizon Hotel, which was a residential building in New York City for young unmarried women. The Barbizon was in operation from 1927 to 1981, and for those decades, it provided a place for young women to live together in safety and comfort and to focus on their careers. The Barbizon has all manner of well-known former residents, including Sylvia Plath, Joan Didion, Grace Kelly, Felicia Rashad, and Liza Minnelli. And it was a respite for young women living and working in New York in a time when it was still considered improper or unsafe for young unmarried women to live alone. And the central thesis of Bren's book about the Barbizon is that a young woman's potential is directly connected to her ability to gain a measure of freedom away from the traditionally gendered roles in the domestic realm, that a young woman needs a room of one's own, to quote Virginia Woolf, to find professional success. I was thinking about the Barbizon quite a bit as I reread Anna the Island for this episode and about how Anne, Philippa, Priscilla, and Stella are in this feminine space where they get to come into their adulthood away from their families without being daughters, wives, or mothers. They get to just be themselves and pursue their own interests, be those academic or literary, romantic, whatever. They do have some household chores, but they aren't caregiving. They aren't solely responsible for maintaining a household, and their time is largely their own. Patty's Place is actually this incredibly unique little jewel box of a space where the girls got a chance to define their destinies. So I have never heard about that book, but can I tell you something interesting about the Barbizon? Uh, Please do. When I started college at Marymount Manhattan College in New York City, they had only just started really trying to recruit more traditional age students to the school by dint of handing scholarships out like candy. Nice. That's why I went. (laughs) But they weren't prepared yet for a freshman dorm situation. So they didn't have enough dorm rooms at the 92nd Street Y for all the freshmen. That's where the freshman dorms were. Cool. So the overflow kids actually stayed at the Barbizon. (gasps) My eventual roommate for the last three years of college started out having to live there and she didn't end up on our floor until about I think six weeks into the school year when maybe like other kids had dropped out or you know Mm -hmm. so I didn't know the history of the Barbizon but I remember from my friend Nicole having lived there so how about that that is very cool did you ever get a chance to check it out No, I had no idea it was historical in any way. I just thought it was another building with a name. Oh, my goodness. I know. I really want to see it now. And well, I have to say, now that you have this personal connection, though, you have to read the book. Absolutely. So for our Birch Path this episode, I wanted to discuss some other similar communities. And I wanted to give our listeners some time to think about why those spaces were so vitally important for young single women, especially in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The Industrial Revolution and the resultant movement from rural farming to urban factory work was a large factor in the development of communal living spaces for young unmarried women. What started happening with the Industrial Revolution is that young women began leaving their families and moving to cities, creating two unexpected problems. First, there was literally a housing crisis. There weren't enough spaces for single women in cities that had historically developed for families for single men. But secondly, there was a sort of crisis of patriarchy as well. Remember, this is all happening in the Victorian era, a time when a woman's innocence and chastity were paramount. And the goal for women was to be the, quote, angel of the house, this sort of domestic ideal of housekeeper, wife, and mother. This angel of the house paradigm effectively trapped women, primarily middle and upper class women, inside their homes. They wouldn't have been able to do so much as leave their homes without a chaperone. So to suddenly have so many young unmarried women 
out on their own wandering around the cities, it caused a lot of consternation. Oh no, young women out and about, what will happen? <laughs> God forbid, <laughs> the young ladies might start thinking. <laughs> or showing their ankles. <laughs> well, <laughs> so there was a great deal of worry that these women could not live alone safely and that they required supervision and decent accommodation to preserve their purity and femininity. So boarding houses, women-only hotels, shared homes like Patty's Place, and organizations like the YWCA came into being. The earliest versions of these spaces would have probably looked a good bit like Patty's Place. Just a nice middle-class house in a safe neighborhood with a house mother like Aunt Jimsy who would keep house and chaperone the unmarried residents. There were rules to enforce good behavior, including oftentimes participating in religious services. An 1870 copy of The Rules for a Home Run by the Ladies' Christian Union told prospective tenants that, quote, those who avail themselves of the comfort of the home must be young, unmarried, and furnish satisfactory testimonials of character, also in what employment they were engaged or intended to pursue. If a young woman was accepted, she had to keep her room neat and clean, attend morning prayers, be present at breakfast and dinner, entertain any guests in the parlor, and adhere to a 10 o'clock bedtime, at which point the gaslight in the homes were extinguished. She could be expelled for breaking any of these rules or for, quote, exerting an influence contrary to the spirit of the home. What do you think, Reagan? Could you do all that? Uh, I wasn't particularly rebellious, but I do think I'd have a hard time with that many rules because I would have thought of myself as an adult or maybe I wouldn't have at the time. But the one about having to be present at breakfast and dinner strikes me as the one that would be really challenging. Like, you know, what if a colleague asks you out for dinner? What if you just want to try a new restaurant? Like you have to be there breakfast and dinner. What if you just don't want to have dinner with these people? Nope. Well, I imagine, right? Like no sleeping in, right? Yep. That would be lazy and, and indolent. Mm -hmm. And the dinner thing, because you're not supposed to be dating, right? Right. Like, who would you be going out to dinner with? Yeah, heaven forfend. And while that all does sound pretty strict, though, it does seem like the young women of Patty's Place more or less conducted themselves in accord with those rules. So I do think that while you and I might have struggled with it, this probably would have been a pretty typical standard of behavior for the time. It also kind of makes me think of Philippa agreeing happily to do chores and limit her male visitors to Patty's place. Rules she meant to set for herself because she saw the wisdom of it, although she hadn't been able to decide to stick to it. By the later 1880s and into the 1890s, there were increasingly more unmarried women moving into cities, not just to work in factories, but also to further their education and pursue careers as clerks, as secretaries, stenographers and telephone operators, teachers, writers, activists, artists, performers, and journalists. Smaller boarding houses were turning potential residents away in droves, and there was a real need for more housing. Enter the YWCA, the Young Women's Christian Association, which in 1891 completed the first new building designed specifically to house young women in New York City. The Margaret Louisa home, as it was known, was quite large, six stories, and capable of housing 110 women. But it was designed to appeal to middle-class women, decorated to feel homey and welcoming, tastefully and comfortably furnished with art, a piano, and little reading nooks. Bedrooms were small and sparsely furnished, but the common areas were pretty nice. The YWCA demanded high standards of behavior as well, and there were codes of conduct similar to what would have been common in boarding houses. The YWCA built residences like this across the United States and Canada, including Elm House in Toronto, and they were a leading organization in developing accommodations for single women. Reagan, did you know that the Hotel Figueroa in downtown LA is a former YWCA hotel for women? I did not know that. It is. It opened in 1926. And much like the Margaret Louisa home, it has gorgeous public spaces and kind of small, quirky rooms. <laughs> I've actually gotten a chance to stay there a few times because it's really close to my office building. And so when I'm doing a trial or a major hearing and I don't want to deal with LA traffic, I sometimes will go in there to hole up. It's a beautiful historic building and it is definitely haunted. <laughs> well, and now you know a little bit more about the history, so you know who's haunting it. Yeah, <laughs> some young unmarried women who missed the dinner bell. <laughs> the next step in the evolution of these communal living spaces for women would be to do away with some of those paternalistic rules. 
Back in New York, the Hotel Martha Washington, completed in 1903, was a 12-story building designed to house between 400 and 500 working women and to meet all their needs. To that end, the ground floors included services like a drugstore, a milliner, a dressmaker, a manicurist, and a newspaper stand. In addition, all the staff were women, including elevator operators. But perhaps most enticing for its residents, promotional materials stated that there would be, quote, no harassing restrictions imposed on the hotel guests other than those prevailing in the best hotels. That was very much sold as a place where a woman's independence would prevail. And in fact, feminist groups working toward women's suffrage made the Hotel Martha Washington their headquarters. What do you think, Reagan? Living the dream? Oh my gosh, so much living the dream. That is so cool. Yeah, and the Hotel Martha Washington was beautiful. I'm going to show you a picture of the lobby of the Hotel Martha Washington. Look at the gorgeous sort of high ceilings and columns and all the woodwork. Oh, yeah, it's just as beautiful as any upscale hotel. It's really lovely with this dining area in the middle. Oh, it's so pretty. Yeah. The Hotel Martha Washington was emulated around the United States and Canada. The Mid Maples Apartments in Toronto opened in 1913 and specifically promoted itself as a haven for young women, away from overbearing and exclusionary boarding house rules. Although Mid Maples was staunchly alcohol free. <laughs> And while the Hotel Martha Washington and Mid Maples apartments were designed for middle class women, similar hotels and apartments catering to working class demographics soon sprang up, including the Trowbridge Inn, which opened in 1896 and housed 250 women. Places like the Trowbridge were not as amenity rich, but they still provided basic room and board, rooms to do laundry and sewing, and parlors to meet guests with, you know, more relaxed rules for moral conduct. These communal living spaces remained a vital part of city living for young unmarried women well into the 20th century. At the height of their popularity, they would have had amenities like ballrooms, doctor's offices, gyms, and swimming pools. They were also marketed towards certain types of women. The Barbizon, for example, was marketed toward artsy, intellectual young women, and its amenities included rehearsal rooms for musicians and studios for artists, as well as cultural programming like lectures and concerts. During their heyday from the 1920s through the 1970s, they were places where ambitious women could meet like-minded friends, get their start in a city, and make the most of life. The hotels meant freedom, according to Paula Bren in her book about the Barbizon Hotel. Women who had never set foot in a big city like New York could find a safe haven there and a launch pad. In an era before email, cell phones, and long-distance calling, newcomers to a city were effectively cut off from their old social networks. And so in these women's hotels, they were able to make new ones, and they lived in an atmosphere of safety and familiarity, even among strangers. We would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that these spaces, like the Barbizon or the YWCA hotels, were nearly always exclusively for white Christian women of means. Women of color, immigrants, and Jewish women would have had the option of boarding houses with other women like them, but likely not these lavish, amenity-rich hotels in prime locations. These kinds of communal living places started falling out of favor in the latter part of the 20th century. And I don't know about you, Reagan, but I honestly think it's kind of a shame. Most modern housing isn't really built for single people. And in big cities, it's rarely affordable to live in as a single person. So the idea of affordable dorm-style living would probably be really attractive to a lot of single people who, you know, just don't want the bother of maintaining an apartment or a house and who want the social connection of cohabitation while still having kind of your own space. The few of these places that have survived are nearly always associated with housing for people who are on the verge of homelessness. And so I think people look down on it due to that association. But it's kind of an unfair association, right? There is a space for this kind of housing for single people. I totally agree. And especially I'm thinking about here in LA where we have mm -hmm. such a housing crisis and housing is so unaffordable for right. so many. Having options like this, particularly when you are young and single and don't yet have a family, being able to have a space like this to live in that feels safe, that feels accommodating, that gives you that ability to be independent, but also provide some amenities Sounds amazing. 
If you were just starting out your career and you had just a nice, safe place to go back to with like some other cool women on your floor and you knew that there would be food in the dining hall or whatever. I mean, oh my gosh, what what a relief, what a respite that would have been. Yeah. Well, Kelly, thank you. That was so interesting, so informative. I learned a ton and it makes me wish that we had more of these spaces still today. Yeah, me too, for sure. Well, let's pivot a little bit. And start wrapping up our episode with some puffed sleeve moments, a little moment of something extra that we couldn't quite squeeze in anywhere else. (laughs) So my puffed sleeve moment for this week is a little quote from Aunt Jimsy. I couldn't find a good place to work it into the body of our podcast, but I was tickled by it just the same. Anne is teasing Aunt Jimsy about her legs being too stiff for a rainy night, saying she didn't think Aunt Jimsy was old enough for rheumatism. Aunt Jimsy replies, Anybody is liable to rheumatism in her legs, Anne. It's only old people who should have rheumatism in their souls, though. Thank goodness I never have. When you get rheumatism in your soul, you might as well go and pick out your coffin. (laughs) That's a little wisdom right there from the best house mother. Okay, Reagan, we're on the same page because I'm also going to quote Aunt Jimsy. I just adore her. She's so funny, full of little bon mots. She is such an icon. And honestly, I wish that I had a house mother like her in my life, maybe even now as an adult. Honestly. <laughs> so after Philippa makes some silly speech or other and kind of flounces off, Aunt Jimsy looks at Anne and asks if Anne thinks Phil is in her right mind. Anne replies, Oh, I don't think there's anything the matter with Phil's mind. It's just her way of talking. Aunt Jamesina shook her head. Well, I hope so, Anne. I do hope so because I love her, but I can't understand her. She beats me. She isn't like any of the girls I ever knew or any of the girls I was myself. How many girls were you, Aunt Jimsy? About half a dozen, my dear. I just love that. I <laughs> I would love to read the fanfic version of all the girls that Aunt Jimsy was in her youth. You just know that she has stories for days with all of her antics. And I think in my wildest imaginings, I sort of picture her as a reformed lady pirate. Kelly, between your Aunt Josephine Berry fanfic and now your Aunt Jimsy fanfic, I think you've got ideas for stories that just are begging to be told. <laughs> Maybe their paths cross. Now that I'm really thinking about it. Maybe they do. (laughs) Well, this week we are inspired by college in popular culture. What is a favorite book and movie for you, Reagan, about college life? Okay, for movies for me, I go back to one of my favorites that I know I mentioned on the pod before, but it's Pitch Perfect. Well, you can never talk about Pitch Perfect too much. Honestly, it's such a good movie. It is. It's set on the campus of the fictional Barden College, and it's about Becca, played by Anna Kendrick, who is prickly, closed off, and convinced she doesn't need friends or a college experience, but who ends up joining the all-girl acapella group. And in doing so, she develops a close camaraderie with all the girls. It's such a perfect capsule of college life. Bad roommates, finding your place, letting go of childhood angers and grudges, growing and sharing your talents, and amazing female friendships. I've always been something of a girl's girl myself and groups of women developing supportive, hilarious, deep friendships is just my favorite. I really appreciate how all the Bard and Bellas are there for each other in such a hilarious, but also very real way. It's a great movie for girl friendships. It really is. And for a book, I was thinking about Fangirl by Rainbow Rowell. Oh, love Fangirl. The book is about Kath who is an identical twin and always planned to stick with her twin, Ren, through college. But Ren chooses not to be roommates with Kath as expected, and Kath has to figure out who she is at college without Ren's presence to shelter her. It's such a wonderful book, and Rainbow Rowell eventually spun the fan fiction that Kath writes into its own series, which is also very good. Yeah, Fangirl is great. It is sweet and funny. Rainbow Rowell just has a way of like connecting right to the emotional core of of things in her books. So my college movie pick is Legally Blonde. (laughs) I knew I knew you were going to pick it. And I'm so happy you did, because otherwise I would have picked it. It is a great movie. It 100% inspired me to go to law school. Well, maybe it 95% inspired me to go to law school. (laughs) But it also has a strong thread about female friendship and building your support network from the other women in your life. And 
I just don't know how many people realize that because it's also showcasing this really specific type of femininity that I think a lot of people associate with cattiness or competition or being shallow. But if you actually pay attention to the women in this movie and how they relate to each other, it couldn't be further from that. Our heroine is Elle Woods, the president of the Delta New Sorority at CULA. Loosely disguised UCLA. (laughs) Right, right. Very loosely. It's literally filmed on their campus. So Elle decides to go to Harvard Law School to follow her Nepo baby ex. But unlike said Nepo baby, Elle actually has the credentials to get into Harvard Law all by herself. She has a 4.0 GPA in fashion merchandising, which might sound frivolous, but I'm telling you right now, that is a business major, so she's working hard. She has a top-level leadership position as the president of an incredibly well-run and active sorority, countless hours of charity work, and a 179 LSAT, which is pretty close to perfect. Believe me, I would have killed for a 179 LSAT score. But best of all, she has two incredible besties, Margot and Serena, who take her seriously, who help her study, and who cheer her on as she undertakes the challenge of applying to the most competitive law school in the country. At the end of the movie, during Elle's big trial, they even road trip in to Boston to support their friend. Margot and Serena support Elle's dreams, are genuinely happy for her successes, and they console her when she's down. Amazing example of the best kind of college friendships. Oh, I love that movie. It's so funny. It holds up really well. I mean, it's, you know, 20 years old now, but still great. And then my book is actually going to be a graphic novel. Alice would be proud. (laughs) I think it actually might have started as a webcomic, but I read it in book form. But the book is called Check, Please by Ngozi Ukazu. And there's a sequel. But this is such a great book about friendship and found family in college. Check, Please is about Eric Biddle, called Biddy who was a former junior figure skating champion who goes to college on a hockey scholarship, mostly based on his grade skating. There's lots of ups and downs as Biddy finds his way at school in hockey and among his teammates. And Biddy's crush on team captain Jack Zimmerman is making it all extra complicated. Biddy eventually finds his place. He moves into the hockey team's shared housing, which is truly so hilarious. Just picture a very earnest young man baking pie in a frat house kitchen. (laughs) and eventually falls in love. It's funny and charming, and it really captures the feeling and the chaos, I think, of college friendships. Oh, well, I will definitely add that to my list and maybe Alice's list. I will lend it to you. Well, thank you for joining us today, Kindred Spirits. Please tune in next episode as we talk about Anne's academic and writing career in Anne of the Island. Follow, like, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts so other Kindred Spirits can find us. And follow us on Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub, perhaps coming soon with some Stella Maynard fan art. Right. The only place, the exclusive place to find Stella Maynard fan art. (laughs) Thank you, Kindred Spirits. 